Our reading today is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable for on the day of Sodom. I'm sorry. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and for you. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Matthew chapter 11. I did call an audible this week. If you were here last week, you knew that uh, I was planning on covering the verses that, that the book we've been reading, Gentle and Lowly, are based in. Those, that's the latter half of 11, 20 through 30. 20 through 30. But as I, I looked at it, it really was two parts. You have 20 through 24 that are talking about condemnation for unrepentant hearts. And then 25 through 30, that's really talking about entering into the rest. So you have, you kind of have the, the condemned and the accepted. And I felt like it would be a better use of our time for me to kind of do justice to both of those. So this week, we're taking the harder verses. Uh, in our passage today, Jesus has hard words for three different cities. In these cities, uh, he's done most of his miracles up to this point. He's lived with these people. He has healed the servant of the Roman centurion in these cities, cured Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. He's cast out demons. He's healed other sick people. He healed a paralytic. He raised a dead girl to life. He restored sight to two blind men and cast out a demon from a mute person who then began to talk. And yet... The people in these cities, they remain indifferent, they remain unrepented, and so Jesus tells them, unless they repent, they will end up under God's condemnation. So there's your Valentine's Day sermon. God's condemnation. You know, this is not, this is not something you advertise and you fill up a room. It's the reason churches, when they want to fill up a room, they advertise their, their relationship series, their dating series, their marriage series. They don't advertise this because this isn't something that people want to hear. And I've told you this before, I'm a people pleaser at heart. This isn't something that I would gravitate to, to preach. I, I, wanna, I wanna say things that I think people are going to want to hear, which is why we're very blessed to have our philosophy of preaching, which forces whoever's teaching to just walk through passages of the Bible. And we have to address things, even when we're uncomfortable comfortable, and even when we feel at times out of our league on certain things. I have a friend who, uh, he told me once, if I want to feel good about myself, I'm going to go to this friend. And if I want to know the truth, I'm going to go to this other friend. And so here in this passage this morning, that's what we're doing. We are having a hard conversation. We're going to the friend who is going to tell us the truth because the truth, the truthful hard conversations are often the most loving and most helpful. So we're going to walk through this passage and we're just going to look at two things. First, the cause of condemnation And then we're going to look more at what condemnation is. Look at five aspects of condemnation. So it seems like two points, but it might actually be six, but we'll see. All right, the cause of condemnation. The cause of condemnation is really clear right off the bat. Verse 20, Jesus says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. 
Very clear. Unrepentant hearts are the cause of condemnation. So what is repentance? I want to take a moment. I want to, I want to just zoom in on repentance for three to four minutes before we dive back into this passage, because there's some things that are really important for us to understand. And I want you to know that most of what I'm going to say, I'm drawing from Tim Keller and that we're going to get just a little bit heady for a second. Okay. But we're going to, we're going to come back down. It's really important to understand what repentance is not and what it is to be able to appreciate how it affects this topic of condemnation. So repentance is not just a religious act. This is really important. Often in, you know, in religion, when we're performing just rote religious acts, we can think repentance is just something we do to not pay the consequences for our sin. So sin brings punishment. We know that we repent so we don't get the punishment and that's the sum total of repentance. And that makes repentance in this kind of religious way the thing that spares us the consequences of our condemnation. And if we, it's kind of like if we do this act of repentance, we don't get the condemnation. So we're in essence saying that uh, if we do this thing, then God owes us this thing. Or if we, you know, if like a Harry Potter wand that we kind of, if we do the right spell on the right, right turn, what we get is, what we, do, what we get is we get out of the condemnation of God. And if we do this, we have a very shallow understanding of repentance and a very shallow understanding of God and a very shallow understanding of the Christian life. The issue isn't what our sin does to us. The issue is what our sin does to God. It displeases God. It dishonors God. Religious repentance is inherently self-centered because it cares about us. It doesn't care about God, but gospel-centered repentance cares mostly about God and less about us. Religious Uh, repentance is, as I said, it's self-centered. It's mainly sorry for the consequences of sin while gospel-centered repentance is mainly sorry for the sin itself and how that sin affects God. There's a big difference. In one situation, it's all about us. In one situation, it's all about God. And I can remember a number of gospel presentations uh, growing up in different places, and I could boil many of them down to raise your hand if you don't want to go to hell. And uh, sure, our hands were up. I mean, that, but... The problem with this, again, is that kind of raise your hand if you want Jesus so you don't go to hell. The main goal of that is simply not getting the consequences of our sin. And then you're missing out on so much that's being offered in the Christian life. And this kind of self-centered repentance, it really is just another form of self-righteousness because we think that we can perform this act of repentance because we're wise enough and we're spiritual enough and we're moral enough. And this act is the thing that in essence is atoning for our sin. I know I said it would get heady for just a second, but stay with me. There's God-centered, gospel-centered repentance, and then there's man-centered repentance. We have to see the difference because this kind of self-centered, man-centered, religious repentance, it will sour your view of pretty much every aspect of this world. If repentance is the way that we earn the forgiveness of God, then we're going to be incentivized to minimize sin in our life, which will actually cause us to repent less. And then we're going to look at people who we don't think repent the way that we should, and we're going to look at them as less moral, less spiritual, less wise, because they don't know to do the thing that we're doing that's earning God's forgiveness. So it creates this condescending, self-righteous kind of mode. True biblical repentance is when we see that Jesus died for us and he opened our eyes to this fact 
and it's offered to us by no merit of our own. His righteousness is offered to us and we get to step into that and respond to that. And then for the rest of the Christian life, we get to continually respond to the grace and love and righteousness because, because to, to act sinfully isn't in line with the, right, with the grace and love that we've received. We're no longer responding just because we don't want to get something bad. We responded because we're overwhelmed with the good that we get and it makes us want to not sin and it drives us to want to be with Jesus. All sin, this is, this is the last thing before we get back to the text. All sin comes from a distorted view of God. All sin comes at, at its essence from us wanting to be king over our lives, from us not wanting God to be the one who dictates everything, all the ways that this world would work. And even though there's always some bitterness and a sting in repentance, anytime you have to repent for anything, whether it's to somebody else or to God, there's always a sting to it. But in gospel-centered, God-designed Christian repentance, it actually, it doesn't just get us in the door, it fuels the rest of the Christian life. So you have this kind of, when you repent, you are seeing your sin for what it is. And when, you, when that happens, in the gospel-centered view of repentance, we're able to become more in awe of the grace and the righteousness that we receive because we're looking at our sin and realizing how much we don't deserve it. And then on the other hand, it's like a, a flywheel pushing itself. We begin to see God's righteousness and his love given to us by no merit of our own. And that causes all the walls to come down and we're more likely to repent. We're not trying to hide things anymore. So it's this continual flywheel of repent and see more of God's grace, see more of God's grace, want to repent more. And that process is is fueling our run, our turn, if you will, from sin into Jesus. And as that happens, sin has less of our hold on our lives and the Holy Spirit has more. So repentance isn't just to get us in the door, although yes, that's a part of it. Repentance is the way that God has designed, one of the ways that God has designed for us to run from sin and run towards Jesus for the rest of our lives. Now, getting back into our passage. These very cities where Jesus had done most of his miracles, they were not repenting. They weren't doing this. Jesus' words, though, if you look at how much time he spent with these people, these, these are not words of an angry man. These are not words of, these are not harsh words. These are not words of an impatient man. This is a sort of last call. You're not listening. You need to be warned what's next. Condemnation. And I think it's also worth noting that these people aren't viciously opposing Jesus. You know, all they are, it seems, is, is indifferent to them. They came out to be entertained by Jesus' miracles. They didn't come out to be transformed by them. And I've said this, I know a number of times now, but indifference to Jesus is opposition to Jesus because it doesn't contain repentance. So when you say not now or I don't know or maybe later or someday, those are all different ways of saying no. That's what they're doing. Their indifference is a no and Jesus is bringing the most harsh warning I think we can ever hear because of that indifference and lack of repentance. And so here's what Jesus says about their lack of repentance. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
So the word woe, or in some of your translations, alas, it means pity. It means an impending doom to these three cities. So you have Chorazin, which is only mentioned here. And in Luke's, Luke's account of the same event, um, uh, Chorazin was probably about two miles northwest of Capernaum. So that these cities are not far from each other. They're easy to travel between. And then you have Bethsaida that, that is on the, other, on the west side of the Galilee, but still not far from these two other cities. Bethsaida is likely uh, the home of Andrew and Peter and Philip. And then you contrast them with Tyre and Sidon. These are pagan Phoenician cities over on the Mediterranean, cities the Old Testament had denounced because of their worship of Baal. And so Jesus is saying, if Tyre and Sidon had seen the things that you've seen, they would have repented now. They would be repentant at this point. And then he takes it a step further in verse 23. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So the interns have, every week, they go through my sermon on Thursday or Friday and they make suggestions and kind of poke. And I feel like most weeks it's a a grade letter better for it. And sometime back, they suggested that I have a once a month cap on World War II illustrations. So I'm, I'm using my, my monthly allotment right now. I, I, I'm full of them because I'm watching Band of Brothers now with my 13-year-old. And uh, so I, I have tons of Dick Winters illustrations in my mind. But here's, here's how I'm going to use my allotment this month. Imagine if Jesus had come to us now and said, Woe to you Americans who have had more access to the gospel and the Bible and Bible teaching than anyone in the history of the world in any part of this earth, more than the people you're reading about in the New Testament. Woe to you who remain indifferent to the gospel of Jesus Christ because Nazi Germany would have repented by now. Stalin and his regime would have repented by now. Saddam Hussein and his regime would have repented by now if they had the access to the gospel that you have, yet you remain indifferent. Woe to you. That's how these people would have, rece- would have received these words from Jesus. And I think it's how we should receive them too. And I want to highlight that Jesus isn't pointing to a morality of one land and an immorality of another land. He's pointing to repentance. That's the point of this passage. It's unrepentance that brings condemnation. So is your life marked by gospel-centered repentance? And I'm not asking if one day you, have, you raised your hand to not go to hell. Or even if one day you made a real commitment to Jesus Christ because gospel-centered repentance is something that goes on over the course of the rest of your Christian life. Is that what marks your life? And here's where I want to come full circle. If you're just repenting of the consequences of sin in your life, that is not biblical gospel-centered repentance. So you have worldly consequences and you have eternal consequences. So worldly consequences is repenting of if I continue to do this, my wife might leave me, my kids might hate me, I might ruin my reputation. That's not biblical repentance. And biblical repentance isn't even just repenting so that we don't get hell. Because if that's how we understand God in repentance, then then we're going to, whether we realize it or not, we're we're worshiping a God who is always holding condemnation over our heads. And subconsciously, we're gonna have to believe at some point that there is a limit to the grace that I can receive because I'm constantly earning the forgiveness of God through my repentance. 
not understanding it's my repentance that's supposed to drive me to God. Biblical repentance always has this Holy Spirit driven voice in our minds and our hearts that says, come to me, you are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you always. That's the voice that drives us away from sin and toward Jesus every day over and over and over again until we go to him or he comes to us. That's biblical repentance. And it's lack of this repentance that brings condemnation on these people and the rest of the world that does not embrace Jesus with a repentant heart. So here we're going to look at five aspects of condemnation. And we, we, we're given a lot in just a few verses. So look again at verses 22 through 24. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought, brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had been done, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So the first aspect we've already seen, and I'm not gonna belabor the point, but unrepentance is the greatest of sins. There's only one unpardonable sin and it is unbelief, having an unrepentant heart. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is that there will be condemnation. There will be this day of judgment in verse 22. Uh, There's this reference to Hades in verse 23, which is really interesting because he's talking to Capernaum and this, what he says to them is exactly what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 14, 15 about Babylon. So there's this not so subtle reference saying Capernaum, Capernaum, you're in the same boat as Babylon, the epitome of evil in the Old Testament and actually in Revelation as we'll see. But listen to what Isaiah says about Babylon. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. That's basically exactly what Jesus is saying will happen to Capernaum. He's he's likening the blessed city of Capernaum to the prideful, evil city of Babylon and says both of them will be brought down to Hades, to Sheol, or hell, however you want to translate that. And John, in Revelation 17.5, He calls Babylon the mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And Jesus is likening them, the Capernaums, to Babylon. Why? Because of their unrepentance. That that's what brings condemnation. Whether you're Babylon or whether you're living in Israel, it's all the same. It's repentance. In Revelation, we also see in chapter one that there will be a day of judgment. And we see that all of us will be judged. Everyone's going to, all of humanity that has ever lived will stand in front of God and everyone will receive a judgment. And, and the thing is, we get to choose now how it is that we want to be judged. Christians have said, we want to be judged on the merits of Christ. We don't want to be judged on the merits of, of our own life. Everyone else who is not a Christian has said in some way or another, I want to be judged on my own merits. And so on that day, the book of life is opened. Everyone who has said, I want to be judged on Jesus's merits. Those are the names who are written in the book of life. And everyone enters because they've all said, it's not by my merit, but Jesus Christ's. And then John tells us that all the books are opened. Everyone left opens the book of their own life, their deeds, and that's how they're judged. And this is what we read in Revelation 21, 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Just to be crystal clear how horrible this is. Here's Jesus about 14 chapters later in Matthew 25. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Mark 9, Jesus calls hell the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These are heavy words that Jesus wants us to hear. And if you remember last week, John the Baptist, what was his main concern, his main main problem with Jesus is that Jesus was bringing all the blessings of the kingdom, but where's the judgment? Where's the judgment that we knew the Messiah would bring? And the answer was, Jesus has chosen to delay it and praise God. He has chosen to delay this judgment, but it will come. Judgment's not fun to talk about. It's not popular to talk about, but it's true. And that's why we have to talk about it. Thirdly, we see in this passage that there are degrees of judgment. It will be more bearable on that day for the Phoenician pagans and those in the land of Sodom than for those witnessing these miracles of Jesus. In Luke 12, Jesus compared it to a servant who knowingly disobeyed his master uh, and then another who didn't know but still committed the same crime. This is Luke 12. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who didn't know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will be demanded the more. And then lastly, the author of Hebrews says in 1029, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? How much worse punishment? There are degrees of judgment. And I think it's fair to loop back that this is horrible news to people who live in the United States of America right now because we have never had greater access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible, and all of the good teaching worldwide than we have now. We have greater access than John the Baptist and these disciples listening, even the believers listening to what Jesus is saying in in that day. Matthew Henry says, the stronger inducements we have to repent, the more heinous is our not repenting and the severer the reckoning will be. Fourth, and this builds on the last one. Jesus has what is called contingent knowledge. So Jesus knows that Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, had they had access to what Jesus is telling these other cities now, they would have repented. D.A. Carson says, at the final judgment, God will take into account not only North America's and every North American's moral standing 
and response to Jesus Christ and use of those opportunities as compared with, say, every Cuban's use of the same, but also what both parties would have done if their roles and advantages had been reversed. So here's the really hard question. If Jesus knew what these other cities would have done if they had had access to the teachings and the miracles that he is bringing, is God unjust for knowingly putting them in that scenario and not this one? And that brings us to the fifth thing we see about judgment. It's that God owes salvation to no one. If all of God, if God's entire plan for the humanity, for for the redemption of all of humanity was only you, you were the only one, that's more grace than this whole world could have ever asked for. Paul is really clear in Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, that's the religious repenting, but on God who has mercy. So I want you to think about it like this. Imagine that you are Florida's greatest Buccaneers fan. You, you have loved the Buccaneers your whole life. You have been at every game. You know all the players from every iteration of that team. And now you get to witness in one year of the arrival of Tom Brady going from a losing record to the Super Bowl. And not just any Super Bowl, it's in Tampa. It's in your home stadium. You have to be at this game. And it's even harder to go because of the limited seating, because of COVID, and you do whatever you can do to gain access to the Super Bowl. You work your connections, you prove what a big fan you are, you pay a lot of money and you get that ticket. And then you go to the game and you look over to your right and there's somebody handing out free tickets. And, and not just free tickets, but, but these tickets are for seats in Tom Brady's personal family box. And you look over and some of these people don't even look like Bucks fans. You're not even sure if they're from Tampa Bay. That dude's wearing a Chiefs jersey. <laughs> and they're getting in. How would you feel? You've worked so hard for this moment. You've earned the right to be here at this moment. And they're getting it for free, these Johnny-come-latelys. You would say, that is unfair. That is unjust. That is how someone... Who, who understands repentance in this self-centered, religious way looks at a true believer in Jesus Christ. But then we get to think about the opposite. Think about getting that ticket, being in that box, knowing that there's nothing that they did to earn that moment. I, I just walked up, I was supporting the Chiefs, and here I am in, the, in Tom Brady's box. They're, they're not going to sit there and try to justify their, the merit of their being there at all. And they might say a lot of things, but the one thing they will never say is this is really unjust. Because the glory and the grace and the awe of everything that they're getting to experience in their total unworthiness, unworthiness to be experiencing it is just hitting so deep in their soul. That's a picture of the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. And and I can't imagine, I don't even know what to multiply it by because we're comparing sports with eternal salvation. No one deserves the grace of God, which is why it's called grace. And it is this grace when we realize we're in the, the Tom Brady box of eternal salvation, it makes us want to repent. I didn't do anything to earn my way here. I'm not, I'm not scared to own up. I was a Chiefs fan. I'm not anymore. <laughs> like, not me, that guy, whoever the illustration is. But it's the awe and the grandeur and the unworthiness of it that makes you want to repent. And you want to repent 
and it drives you from sin. And as we continually do, and it drives us to Jesus. This is a heavy passage, but it's one of those hard conversations that we have to have because they're important and because they're important, they're true, because they're true, they're loving to have. And Jesus is saying these hard things to people that he cares about. He wants people to turn and to repent so that they won't receive the condemnation that he's talking about in this passage and they will receive the rest that we're going to talk about next week. But today, I think the best thing we can do is really just probe our own hearts and our souls. Is our life one marked by repentance? Are we under the condemnation of God or has that been taken away for us on the merits of Jesus Christ? Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. So I won't either. Capernaum, they are double cursed because of their access to the gospel. And I have to imagine if that's true, tenfold to the United States of America today. May God have grace on us. May we have soft hearts that desire repentance. And may we have hearts that grieve our sin because it maligns the character of God and because it's out of line with the love and the righteousness that we have been lavished with. By God, through Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you that you don't come in and first preach condemnation. This feels like this, it is true, but it feels like this last call when we don't understand grace. Let us understand grace. And maybe we understand grace by understanding the gravity of the condemnation that you have borne through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray this morning that we would be a people who would be deeper, more deeply repentant. And it would be like this flywheel that we just see our sin more clearly. And as that happens, we would see your grace and love more abundantly is, and we see, and as we see that grace and love more abundantly, we then the walls come down, and we want to repent all the more. And as we do that, we're running from sin and running to you and being conformed in the image of your Son, giving our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.